Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Donald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. It's Friday, April 25th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast, and you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, on Stitcher, Swell, or any other podcasting app. And I want to let you know that this episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. And exclusively for listeners to this episode, Audible has a great offer, a free audiobook. Yep, totally free. You just have to go to this specific URL to get it, audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. For today's show, I interviewed one of my favorite science writers, Mary Roach, whose books seek to answer profound questions with meticulous research and her signature sense of humor. She's been called America's funniest science writer, and I would I would even venture to say she's the world's funniest science writer. Uh, And so far, every one of her books has been a bestseller. They're the kinds of nonfiction books that you don't want to put down, and they cover taboo topics like human cadavers, the afterlife and sex. And now, what happens to food as it travels from our noses to our toilets? And I have to say, it's a much more fascinating journey than I originally had thought. It's marked, of course, by many unusual twists and turns, as is her style. Like the fact that we're not alone in our intestines. For every cell that holds our DNA, there are many more that don't in our gut. We share our food with many other organisms. Here's what she had to say. Basically, they get our leftovers. The things that we're not going to use that we can't absorb goes on down to these guys in the colon who are um, breaking them down, creating some nutrients down there. And um, there's the, the statistic that blows my mind that I've heard is that for every one cell of you, there are nine of them. So as one of the gastroenterologists said to me, it's kind of a philosophical question of who owns whom. So, Indre, let me thank you for the fascinating and occasionally gross interview, although I am hard to gross out. I don't know if people know that, but now you know it. I got to say, it raises another philosophical question. If we're mostly bacteria, do they have free will and then confer it to us? No, I'm not sure we should try to answer that because it would take up our whole show. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, first of all, you reminded me that we do need to have a bit of a trigger warning about this interview. We do talk right. about things that are gross. So if you have, yes. you know, a reflex that especially to some people <laughs> that makes you, you know, nauseated, make sure you're not listening while you're driving or doing something dangerous. Um, but you know, <laughs> <laughs> yes, <that'd> be bad. <laughs> I, I would argue that bacteria don't have free will, and you know that's just an intuition I have. But in my opinion, free will requires that an organism can make a conscious choice. And since they have no neurons and neurons are the seat of consciousness, I don't think they're conscious, which means that they might react, but they don't choose. So Chris, how's that for free will in a nutshell? That's good. And it means we're at least 90% organisms without free will. Okay. So, um, so we think, (laughs) yeah, right. So that'll be our interview for today. But first let's talk about some science in the news. One of the things that always fascinates me about the brain is that we can never really know whether our experience of the world is uniform. That is, we can both agree that an object is, say, green, but does your green look the same as my green? I don't know how we'll ever know until we figure out how to upload our brains into some kind of shareable interface, and maybe we'll talk about that in a minute. But one of the experiences that, unlike color perception seems to be fairly variable across people is pain tolerance. So some people tend to be able to handle more pain than others. And the question is, do they feel the same amount of pain, but can cope with it better? Or do they feel less pain? I don't think we really know yet. But it turns out that like so much of our experience, there might be a genetic component. So maybe there's some truth to my family's claim that we of Eastern European stock are strong like bull. (laughs) (laughs) We can can handle anything, the Lithuanians. But this week at the American Academy of Neurology meeting in Philadelphia, a man by the name of Tabori Onojigofia, I hope I didn't butcher that too much, and his co-authors are presenting some data that suggests that there is actually a genetic basis for pain tolerance. So specifically, they asked about 2,700 people who were taking opioids for chronic pain to rate their pain on a scale of 1 to 10. Then they divided them into three groups. There were the low pain people, moderate pain people, and high pain. And about 9% of them had low pain, but the other two groups had about 45% of the subjects each, which makes sense because, you know, they're on pretty serious medication for pain. And they found out that there were four gene variants that were associated with different levels of reported pain. Now, just a caveat here, the lead author works for a company called Prove Biosciences, and it's a biotech company in the personalized medicine field. So they create lab testing tools that are geared to aid in the selection, dosing and evaluation of pain medication. So they have a vested interest in finding a genetic component in pain. Well, but it sounds, it stands the reason that there would be such a, I mean, there are genetic components of so many things. I, I do wonder, you're, you're, you're cool with the idea of subjectively reporting your pain and then, uh, correlating that with gene variants and, and thinking we've actually gotten individual differences because, I mean, pain is subjective, right? I mean, it's very subjective. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly what it is. It's an experience. You can't, it's very hard to, I mean, you can measure things like heart rate increase or, you know, other sort of corollaries of feeling pain. Um, And and I wish they did that. I I would love to have seen also, you know, the people who had, you know, this pain had some kind of other markers of stress or or something that would indicate that they actually do feel more pain. Um, But there's a larger issue here, which is is whether this is really just some kind of correlation with self-report, right? (laughs) So, you know, we don't know whether these genes are actually involved in some kind of other psychological factor that is secondary to pain perception, or really if it's pain perception in particular. 
particular. Um, but I still think it's really cool to be able to use our genetic makeup in the treatment of variable conditions like pain, where, you know, so many people have so many different reactions. And so it's really hard for a doctor to find the right dosage of a pain medication. Yeah. Well, I want to I want to rewrite their headline. It is science now reveals whether or not you're a wimp. What do you think? I think that that would I think that this story would go, go more viral with that. Headline. Uh, it might. I'd like to find out if I'm a wimp. <laughs> you know, I've, I mean, uh, you know, could I'm I, I not could be. I wouldn't. I don't know if I'd that. know. <laughs> <laughs> OK. OK, well, let's let's move on in that note. So on our show, uh, a lot of listeners will remember the show with Neil Tyson we talked a lot about how we're starting to have a more science-friendly culture, partly because of people like Neil Tyson um, being all over media. But that doesn't mean there's no science denial anymore. Actually, I would submit that the two are very different things because even the worst denier like claims to love science and thinks it's awesome. They just think that their version of it's right. Uh, and so... So they're separable. And this week we got a new survey from the Associated Press and a firm called GFK showing the current state of American science denial. And it's not happy. There's some good news in there. Most Americans are quite convinced that smoking causes cancer. 82% are extremely or very confident of that. So there was misinformation about that for a long time. That misinformation seems to have been beaten. Um, Something else that's kind of good news, Andrea, I want to hear what you think of this. 71% are confident that, quote, a mental illness is a medical condition that affects the brain. And you have to wonder, what do the others think a mental illness is? <laughs> you know, what is it, a spiritual affliction? I don't know. But um, Well, no, I think that actually talks to a lot of people think mental illness is something that's psychological and, and a lot of people don't believe yeah. that the brain is entirely, you know, that, that all of our psychology is in the brain, which is Yeah, so that's probably... Partly explaining that. But then you go down the list of the survey, right? And the bad news, the really bad news starts rolling in. So here's another statement. Childhood vaccines are safe and effective. 53% only are confident or very confident that that statement's true. Another 30% are somewhat confident. Fully 15% are not too confident or not at all confident. So those are the vaccine deniers. Uh, no, no majority there, but a substantial minority that is a problematic minority to have. Of course, there's global warming denial. I'm not even going to touch it. Here's the, the thing that's striking here. They then they asked the religion ones, the evolution question, the age of the earth question, and the Big Bang question. And the Big Bang was the least popular um, when people were read this statement, the universe began 13.8 billion years ago with a big bang. Only 21% were extremely or very confident that the statement was true. 51% were not too confident or not at all confident it's true. So we have a long way to go on this. And I think what people don't like about that big bang statement is they actually mentioned how long ago it was. I think that that's probably what's really throwing them off. You know that it, it, when I listen to that statement, I actually have more of a problem with the big bang part, right? Because as you understand, you know, the big bang really wasn't a bang, right? It was an expansion. So <laughs> I would almost have trouble with saying yes to that question too, even though, you know, I know that the theory is, is, has, there's a ton of evidence for it. So that's one of the problems I have with these surveys is that the way you ask the question is so influential on how people answer it. So, you know, it is shocking to me, though, that there are some questions like evolution and, you know, et cetera, that seem to be more accepted than some of these fundamental science things. That's why it makes me wonder if it isn't just how these questions are posed. 
Yeah, but anyway, you pose them, you're going to get substantial non-acceptance of things that ought to be 100%. So, I mean, you're going to get bad numbers, but I, am, I do think that the wording of this one gives you this incredible 51% uh, not accepting it. So. Yeah, absolutely. But hopefully we can do a m- number more surveys, you know, with questions posed a different way so that we can really assess to what extent, you know, these particular issues need to be more discussed. So, for example, the fact that, you know, vaccines is down to 15 percent. I mean, you know, you could argue that five years ago that might have been a higher number, but we've talked about it a lot. And yeah, so- I don't know if it was. I don't know if it was with that one. Uh- that's 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 an empirical question that I don't know the answer to. But but my understanding is it's always been this minority. But but if it clusters in an area, then you have a problem anyway. Absolutely. Well, with that, let's take a short break, and we'll be back with my interview with Mary Roach. This week's episode is sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from, including the books of this week's guest, Mary Roach. Audible lets you listen to audiobooks whenever and wherever you want. So Audible has the book we talked to Roach about, Gulp, as well as her other books, Stiff and Bonk and Spook. And they're offering Inquiring Minds listeners any one of their audiobooks for free just by going to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. So right now you can pick up Gulp or any one of her books or any other book in their huge library for free by going to, once again, audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. If we were a book, we would be think. We have to be one syllable. We have to be one syllable. I hope it would be think. What do you think? <laughs> Although I worry she might have a different word for us. But anyway. <laughs> Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Mary Roach. Thank you. Your most recent book, Gulp, Adventures on the Alimentary Canal, has just been released in paperback. And in it, you follow the flow of food uh, from our sense of smell to taste and so on, all the way to the other end. Now, this is quite the grand journey, but because we're somewhat pressed for time in this interview, I wanted to jump right into the deep end, as it were. The below the waist end. Exactly. (laughs) One thing that has become abundantly clear in the last few years is that we're not alone in our intestines, that we share the tract with many other species and in fact depend on them to stay alive. So I wanted to talk a little bit about some of our bacterial buddies. So how does our intestine actually get colonized in the first place? What do they do for us and what happens if they don't do what they're supposed to? Well, we get them, apparently, we get them at birth going through the the birth canal, which is a lovely way of saying vagina. Uh, so we get an inoculation that way, which is uh, uh, an interesting has interesting to think about when you uh, think about c- C-sections and how, you know, how, how then do we get bacteria that way? But anyway, uh, uh, a large portion of them come from mom from, you know, from the get go. And you, uh, the, the, they are mostly, the vast majority of them are in the large intestine, the colon, and, and that they are breaking down the material that didn't get absorbed on the upper, you know, the, 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 most of the absorption happens in the small intestine. It's got these lovely little fingers that increase the surface area and they're just absorbing and absorbing and absorbing the things that can't be absorbed that haven't been broken down that land in the colon. Those are, uh, worked on by bacteria and they're, they're, they're further broken down. And, uh, but a lot of the stuff, I mean, they, it's beneficial for them too. It's, uh, that we deliver them, uh, all the food that they don't get, they basically, they get our leftovers. The things that we're not going to use that we can't absorb goes on down to these guys in the colon who are um, breaking them down, creating some nutrients down there. And um, there's the, the statistic that 
blows my mind that I've heard is that for every one cell of you, there are nine of them. So as one of the gastroenterologists said to me, it's kind of a philosophical question of who owns whom. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, it's kind of amazing to think about. Um, but I want to actually just get back to your very first comment, which is that, you know, we get these buddies from mom. So what happens in, in C-sections? I've actually heard that women who get C-sections might consider, you know, kind of like wiping vaginal fluid on the face of their newborn baby to sort of colonize them. Do you think that would work? Does anybody do that? I don't know if that works. That's an interesting, I mean, it makes a certain amount of uh, intuitive sense that you'd, you'd want to mimic what happens in the birth canal. Uh, but it, But there's so many C-sections and people uh, people who've had C-sections go on to be able to, you know, to have a normal functioning adult life. So I, I, I'm not entirely sure if anybody knows. I mean, it seems like can't hurt might help. Um, so why not? It is a, a kind of an odd thing to, I guess, picture doing with a baby, but, um, <laughs> the, that's, uh, uh, sure. I don't know. I don't know of any studies on it is what I'm saying that I don't know exactly, um, if anybody's looked at whether it that helps or has anybody looked at the the sort of the future of those babies do babies with c-sections tend to have more gastrointestinal problems um you know going forward i seem to recall reading something about yeah that there's there's some higher percentage of some gastrointestinal disorders i didn't cover it in the book so i'm not sure which gastrointestinal issues were higher in C-section babies, but I seem to recall hearing that. But since I'm not an authority on that, I probably shouldn't mouth off about it. Um, but there, but it is, they say that you can, um, you can trace family trees through gut bacteria, that, that it is that, um, that, you know, that you are getting it from the parent and, and, and you, you take antibiotics, you wipe them out, they tend to come back, the same populations come back and it's fairly consistent over time, in a, which is, kind of amazing. That is kind of amazing, especially because, you know, we, we are told that we should eat probiotics in order to colonize our guts. Yeah. Um, and yet, so, so you'd think then that you, whatever you ingest in the probiotic is what gets colonized. Um, but that well, doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah. With, with probiotics, uh, I mean, the ultimate probiotic is a fecal transplant. And with a fecal transplant, and this is done with people who have a, a chronic infection called C. difficile, which can be very difficult to get rid of. And um, so you take the, the, the he a healthy person's microbiome, that is to say, uh, a dose of feces, and it's processed when I was there uh, at the lab uh, using an oster blender and some distilled water. And it's put in with a colonoscope. And a, it's what I'm, what I'm getting at here is it's a lot of material because you are trying to overwhelm a huge population. You're, you're, you're creating like world war in the colon, this you know sudden invasion of somebody else's uh, bacteria, which is taking over your own. You, typically, the person's been given antibiotics to you know, create a kind of a clean slate for the new for the newcomers to uh, move into. But it is um, the point I was going to make is that probiotics, uh, if it's just a little capsule or or a little bit at a time, some of the, the analogy somebody gave to me was it's like trying to raise the sea level with a teacup. So you really need uh, a tremendous number coming in to make a difference in, in the population. I mean, think of it as a yeah, as a it's kind of like a combination of immigration and world war, you have this population coming in and if whether or not they'll be successful in, in colonizing depends on uh, what happens with the uh, 
the folks that are already there. So it is, um, so probiotics, you know, again, it's, uh, uh, can't hurt might help situation, but there's a lot of probiotic products that really haven't been tested in humans that are such, and they're also such small amounts that you have to wonder how much difference it, it would make. But in there are also cases like in the vagina for yeast infections, you know, lactobacillus has been shown to help. And there are definitely um, cases of you know bacteria being uh, a treatment for uh, various imbalances of a microbiome. So I never thought I'd actually say these words, but I'm glad that you brought up fecal transplants because <laughs> they were something that I was particularly interested in talking to you a little bit about. And I suppose it's too late now, but I did want to give our listeners a bit of a trigger warning. Um, some of the things we are discussing today <laughs> <Oops>. are gross. <laughs> and this probably takes the cake, uh, if I could put that uh, metaphor in there. So tell me a little bit more about fecal transplants, uh, what they're mainly for, and why it seems that we never hear about them until we read about them in your book. They are right now mainly used for a particular infection in the colon, this bacteria C. difficile, which uh, doesn't always respond to antibiotics. And uh, the antibiotics tend to wipe out all the bacteria but the C diff, so the C diff actually becomes stronger uh, and has a you know gains a foothold and comes back with a vengeance. So if it, if the antibiotics don't wipe it out, then it, each successive time it's you use antibiotics, it becomes harder and harder and, this, and and less and less likely to succeed. So the treatment then is just to just take a healthy person's intestinal bacteria and you're taking it in the form of their waste. Um, which is the, just the simplest way to do it. And just introducing it uh, using the same device you would use to do a colonoscopy. It has a little plunger attachment. You can also go through the mouth, which is even a little more distasteful, if you can imagine, <laughs> and doing it through the back door. But you can like, like go down through with an endoscope through the stomach and, and go in that way. But one way or the other, you've got to introduce a large amount of material and you're going to overwhelm the bad guys with good guys. And this has been done, uh, the uh, agriculture community, uh, particularly, you know, dairy farmers, uh, they've done with cows. If there's something, if the, if the cow has some sort of intestinal distress, you just throw a bit of somebody else's poop in there and it usually clears it right up. So, uh, farmers have known about fecal transplants for a long time. And, uh, the fecal transplants, uh, the bacteria therapy is the sort of the, tidier term for it that I also hear. Uh, bacteria therapy has, uh, in the time since I started working on this book, I don't know, four years or so ago, it's gone from being something when I say, oh, I'm researching fecal transplants, I get this shock and horror reaction. And now people are like, oh, yeah, fecal transplants. Oh, yeah, yeah, I heard about that. So the acceptance of it has really come around partly just because there's been enough coverage that people are now no longer, it's not something that's novel and upsetting in the same way that it was. And also because there've been a couple of large studies in prominent journals saying this has like a 90 something percent cure rate. It's very effective. It's cheap. You know, crap, crap is cheap. There's not, you know, there's no, it's not like a $30,000 a month pharmaceutical treatment. It's, it's really simple and cheap. Uh, or it should be. I'm sure there are people who are trying to uh, 
mark up the price and, and profit off of it. So it's a combination of those factors. It's it's gained a lot of acceptance, and I think it'll there'll be people uh, there'll be researchers trying it out for irritable bowel disease or or inflammatory bowel disease, all, all manner of there's there's uh, earwax transplants have been done, and I think there's some someone talking about looking at gum bacteria and maybe because uh, there's a lot of difference in depending on what bacteria you have in your mouth, you may be more or less, more or less prone to gum disease. So a, a uh, bacterial transplant in the mouth, or you could just make out with somebody new, I guess, and get <laughs> an infusion of new bacteria, hopefully better that way. Yeah, that's the first uh, positive argument for making out with strangers that I've heard in a long time. <laughs> you do kind of want to <laughs> talk to their dentist first to see how their gums are. I guess like the ultimate recycling program. Um, <laughs> but I, I wanted to read one quote from your book that really made me sit up and, and listen, as it were. Changing people's bacteria is turning out to be more and a more effective strategy for treatment and prevention of disease than changing their diet. It's kind of an amazing statement. Yes. Well, it's it's turning it's 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 turning out. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of research being done on the microbiome, not just in the gut, but a lot of it in the gut. And you know, it used to be that you would look at that researchers would look at the foods that you eat as you know the potential for curing or preventing disease. And now it's turning out that it's the things that that food is broken down into. It's the constituent components that may make the difference. And that's also true with drugs. The way you know you take some kind of a, a drug, the bacteria are going to affect that as well. So so the efficacy of drugs may also depend on what bacteria you know what what colonies and what types of bacteria you have in your gut so it's just it's just everything's become a a measure more complex and it's both very very promising and also very complicated and so it, and really right now just in the infancy but i think in the next 25 years there'll be uh there'll be a lot more conditions other than c diff infection that will be treated this way so it kind of begs the question that now that we're getting more comfortable with having these bacteria and, and, and other friends in our guts, why it is that people would sort of gravitate towards things like enemas and cleanses in order to make themselves feel better. So, you know, the argument there, of course, is they're get, getting rid of toxins, but certainly they're probably getting rid of some of these good bacteria as well. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, no. And and the, the toxin issue, I mean... You know, enemas and and cleanses have been around for hundreds of years, and it makes intuitive sense that you know, crap, shit is this stuff that is off-putting. It's smelly. It's revolting. We want to stay away from it. There are pathogens in it, so we tend to make the leap and think: the less time I'm exposed to this in my body, the healthier I'll be. So there have been um, not just enemas and cleanses, but there were surgeons actually removing the colon the large intestine, taking it entirely out to speed things through, basically creating chronic diarrhea in the hopes that you'd lower your exposure to these toxins. Uh, and there was a study that is uh, it's kind of an unusual and creepy study, but it there was a, there was a guy, in order to, to refute this, and this was in, the, I think, the early 1900s, in, or, in order to refute this, to debunk it, he did this experiment where he constipated dogs by closing <laughs> closing up the anus, basically. And then um, the theory would be if they're now absorbing all these toxins, he then he then took blood samples and then put it in other dogs trying to see, do you create symptoms, et cetera, and couldn't find any of these symptoms. And the other the other fun the other fun debunking study was 
they um, artificially constipated somebody with kind of wadding with sort of material to mimic constipation. And then, but it wasn't, there were no toxins in it. And then they remove this material and the person feels instantly relieved. Well, there wasn't any toxins. So the relief had to do more with the chronic presence of backed up material, that it was sort of a physiological effect and not, because if you think about it, if if an enema brings instant relief, well, then it wasn't a chemical process of blood poisoning because that wouldn't clear up instantly the moment you flush the stuff out. So there, there's a number of studies that have really poked holes in this whole theory of uh, auto-intoxication, of self-poisoning through toxins. So it kind of makes, you know, there's this idea too, of course, that um, that there's a sort of satisfaction with eliminating your own waste, right? Even in the Bristol stool scale, there's the, there's a, you know, the, the, the best one is where you have a sense of complete <laughs> evacuation. Um, so is that really what the enema is doing is kind of triggering this kind of very almost mechanical response that, that gives us an, an relief? Yeah. And I think, it, I think there's a psychological component uh, as well. It's just a, a, a sense of being in, internally cleansed. There were lots of, uh, there was lots of um, devices like fountain syringes. There was like a whoopee cushion with a nozzle nozzle that you sit down on and it would spray the stuff up inside and you'd feel cleansed from within. And I think that that some of that was was strictly psychological. So we now know that we have these, you know, friends in our gut that we want to hang out with, but there are other animals that can live inside us that are not quite so, let's say, desirable, like parasites and worms, etc. In your research, what were some of the strangest ones that you came across? Mm, um, there is a little tiny worm. I shouldn't even tell anyone this, but in su- in <laughs> oh, sushi, <please> <laughs> sushi, there's it's called an anisocid, and it's this little tiny. It's this little. Oh, it looks just like a piece something, like a piece of thread. You know, maybe a centimeter long at most. And but this little guy has on his head. It's called a boring tool. It's like an electrical drill on the head, and it drills through various components of the gastrointestinal system, making its way. I forget where exactly it's going now, but it's trying to get out of the stomach and head somewhere else. And often you cough up the worm, but it can create a, a tremendous amount of havoc down there. Fortunately, most sushi that you're getting in a sushi restaurant has been frozen, and that will kill the on a socket worm. But that just the idea of having a drill on your head. And if you look at blow ups of these, it's quite alarming. (laughs) So have you stopped eating sushi? Oh, no. Oh, no, not at all. (laughs) No. So there are also parasites that we're warned about that, you know, will sort of grow to extreme lengths. Were there any stories that you heard that were based on fact as opposed to fiction of incredibly long parasites? Well, there were these stories for for centuries of snakes and slugs and frogs even living inside people's stomachs and intestines. Um, stomach snakes and frogs uh, were you, they would turn up in medical re- reputable medical journals, and it was always the story always went. I was out hiking in the country and I drank from the stream and I must have swallowed some larvae, and they grew they they hatched inside and I can feel. And what it was, was people would have strange feelings of gurgling and movement inside them, which is normal. There's a lot of motility and things sort of shifting around and gurgling inside you. But you could imagine someone might get the idea in their head that there was something actually in there. They also used this um, 
you know, if they had if they had symptoms, say, of uh, lactose intolerance or any kind of gastrointestinal distress, they think it was the snake or the frog moving around or 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 getting angry or or uh, wreaking havoc in there. So the um, they, and they'd go to the doctor, and the doctors would uh, sometimes uh, believe them. I mean, it was uh, it, it, so the degree to which of the commonness of those uh, reports were was kind of amazing. And and uh, so snakes. So that's probably the biggest uh, snakes and frogs. And there was a guy who, again, I love this. The creativity applied to debunking this. Um, one guy came. Uh, there was one particular patient who claimed like to have had a succession of frogs. And the doctor said, "Okay, let me see one of these frogs." And he cut open the frog and he looked at what was in the frog's stomach. And of course, there are some half digested insects, which led him to realize, "No, you haven't had a frog in your gut for years because unless you're." Also ingesting insects to feed the frog. This frog died outside of your body. Like, I love that. So, is there any evidence that any of these animals actually did exist or did get hatched into someone's stomach, or is it all just been myth? No, it. it no, there isn't any evidence of that. However, um, I did spend some time thinking about. You know, I, I wanted to see: Are there any creatures that could live inside the stomach of of a predator, and even? Uh, get revenge and prevail, like eat their way out. Now, there is a there is a rumor in the herpetology community that uh, mealworms can survive and eat their way out of a lizard or frog's stomach. And I've spent some time in a lab at the University of Nevada. Uh, Richard Tracy is the the guy who set up the experiment, and we actually put an endoscope down a lizard and a frog's mouth. And uh, had them eat a mealworm and or swallow it whole. In fact, we, we made sure it was an animal that would swallow it whole. And then we watched, and there was almost no activity. The animal it, it didn't die. We pulled it back out, and it lived. But it, when it was in there, it just very quickly went still. There was no effort to eat out of the stomach. And we did this multiple times with different animals, and it was an interesting <laughs> afternoon. Uh, and uh, yeah, anyway, we managed to pretty much debunk that myth. Uh, mealworms like to burrow underneath things and be in the dark. And, and I, you know, I can imagine coming along, seeing the end of a mealworm sticking out of your pet and think, and the pet is dead and thinking it's dead. And I, I saw the mealworm coming out. You could sort of see how it might have also having watched the film Alien, I could imagine being influenced by that where the thing comes out. And I think that made a tremendous impact on us culturally, that scene where the thing that hatched inside suddenly emerges from the skin. So, But anyway, I, I know of no instance where that's been documented. Well, that's certainly a relief. Um, and so besides the animals that we have in our bodies that are there from birth and so on, there are also times in which we put things up our rear ends, uh, like in the case of people in prison trying to smuggle in things or drug mules. And so I wanted to shift the conversation now to things we stick up our rear ends uh, and ask you a little bit to tell us a little bit about a particular prison inmate who seems to have caught your attention, whose nickname was Office Depot. Yeah, uh, yeah. I have a chapter on the Alimentary Canal as criminal accomplice, and um, there are two ways to do that. You either eat it, you swallow it, or you put it up the back way. And you know, there's reasons to do both. But anyway, Office Depot or OD, as he was known for short, he's someone who was uh, caught on a strip search coming into Avenal State Prison with uh, three large office binder rings and a box of staples. And I believe there were a couple of other things. And they never did get him to explain 
what he was doing with those uh, particular items, but he became known as uh, OD or Office Depot. And you also interviewed someone who has done this. Um, tell us a little bit about what, what you found out from that interview. Well, I found out that it is, it's a, a, a uniquely awkward scenario to sit down with a convicted murderer and ask him about his defecatory reflex, reflexes and how he manages to override those when smuggling things in and out of the prison. But he was a very, uh, uh, a very genial guy. And the other thing about hooping, as it's known, putting things through the anus and up into the rectum, uh, it is so, it is such an everyday practice. It's like flossing your teeth or rotating your tires. It's just not a weird, I mean, it's, it's just practically, okay, you got to get this in. How are you going to do it? You're going to hoop it. And you see, I watched a lot of video camera footage from the prison, from the visitor's room of people taking things from a family member or a friend and hooping it. And it's just like someone reaching back and putting a handkerchief in their pocket. You would never know unless you knew what you were looking for what this person was doing. Their fa their facial expressions rarely betrayed it. Uh, it, it. And so it's such a matter-of-fact, everyday part of life in prison that it, it was actually not that strange a conversation to have, believe it or but, not. But uh, surely when, you're first, when you first come into prison, I mean, this has got to be a skill that requires some practice. You know, you'd think the first couple times you try to hoop something, I mean... <sighs> It's got to yeah. be hard. No, and the inmates, yeah, the inmates do practice. They kind of putter around the cell holding something in their rectum. They they definitely have to to get used to it. Um, and they were saying yeah, this. I asked if you know if uh, if gay inmates uh, have sort of a leg up, <laughs> you know, if they're a little they're more practiced. And he said, oh yeah, they're often recruited because they're practiced. Uh, he said that we call them vaults. <laughs> I thought that was an interesting <laughs> touch. <laughs> And so the main issue here is that they have to prevent themselves from literally like pooping it out at the wrong moment. So do they do they feel the urge the entire time and learn to control it? Or do they learn to get rid of the urge? They learn to uh, just push on through. And, and if what happens, though, with the defecatory, the urge, the reflex uh there is, of course, a manual override. You can ignore this urge. And if you do ignore it, it, your body backs off for a while and lets you kind of go about your business, finish up what you're doing. And then it will come back and tap you on the shoulder and go, oh, hey, you still got to do this. And so the, the, the time between urges gets shorter and shorter and the urge gets stronger and stronger. So you have to have quite a, uh, uh, an iron will at a certain point to keep it in. And when that has been, uh, it's initially not so much in a smuggling in and out of prison scenario, but people who have, who are drug mules, who are detained on suspicion of holding narcotics, they will sometimes uh, just days go by. And I don't, I have no idea how they do that, but they hold it in and it becomes more and more, uh, more and more difficult and more and more hard to manually override. Uh, yeah. Uh, the prisoner I talked to, he said, Mm, yeah, it finds its place. You know, he didn't really have a, a, a scientific explanation for how he does it. But I, yeah, I think it's uh, like anything else, a matter of getting used to it. Yeah, well, the human body has an amazing capacity for adaptation. So I guess this is one of those examples. Yeah. But you also talk about um, how, you know, this could be a potentially very dangerous thing from the point of view of a terrorist, right? So why don't terrorists uh, run around with bombs in their rectums more often? Because explosives uh, 
10, they don't, you know, the, the difference between the damage done at six inches versus a foot is significant. Uh, like I forget, like 70% of the damage, you, your own body will take 70% of it. Uh, and, you know, you're a suicide bomber, I guess you don't care, but your efficacy in killing your target, sorry, is, is very diminished when the, when the device is, if it's inside you as opposed to on a vest. So you are, uh, and there's been, there's been uh, cases where uh, uh, the it wasn't a, he wasn't in the rectum, but I think it was taped behind the testicles, and then it was um, behind the scrotum. And the the guy was the, the the suicide bomber was killed, and the person sitting right next to him wasn't even scratched. So it's not particularly. And the other thing you're uh, you know you're often what's killing people is, is shrapnel, ball bearings, little scraps of metal, things that are propelled outward and then hit a wide array of people. So it's not the bomb itself, but these projectiles. So again, the body, having it inside the body would interfere with that. And also, you, you know, the detonation becomes more complicated. There's, uh, you know, if you swallow it, is the stomach acid going to interfere? It's just, it's just not a practical way to do it. So yeah, it seems like that our, our uh, anuses are in some way protective of, of our general society. <laughs> yes, but here again, reason to be thankful for your anus. There was also this, there was also talk that uh, that in some cultures, just taking it up the rectum was was thought to be unmanly. It was you know that was that was uh, it was a gay thing to do, and you would never like that was like oh no, he did. I was definitely not in his rectum. He definitely had it between his legs. Like there was a sort of a the person that I talked to thought that it was um, also culturally. Not not the manly, not the manly way to carry your bombs. <laughs> so of course, there's another thing that comes um, out of your anus that is funny, and that is a fart. Uh, so I wanted to move a little bit to talk a little bit about flatulence. And one of the most amazing stories in your book about flatulence is about the origins, perhaps, of fire-breathing dragons. So can you tell us about your theory uh, of how these dragons first came into our culture? Sure. Yeah. Well, it was actually the theory of a snake physiologist named Stephen Secor at the University of Alabama, and he was—we don't need—I don't need to really explain how he got to this, but he was doing a different kind of research. But he um, realized that there's a tremendous amount of hydrogen, in particular, coming off of a, say, a rodent. You know, a snake swallows a rodent, it's in there a long time decomposing, and it's generating a lot of gas. And hydrogen at something like 10% is combustible. And he realized that if you were to say, you know, snakes, people eat snakes. And, and if early man, somebody had dragged back one of these snakes that happened to be in the process of digesting a rodent, and they set it down by the fire, and somebody stepped on the snake, blew out the hydrogen, the fire ignited the hydrogen coming out of the snake's mouth. Well, there you have the origins possibly of a story of a fire-breathing serpent. So that was just a theory, uh, uh, which I loved. Uh, and, um, you know, who knows whether or not it's true, but it certainly was a, an interesting idea. It's a great story. And I don't know if you've read the news lately or if you had come across this particular notion in your research, but recently the idea of capturing cow farts to save the world has made it into the news. So, you know, apparently there's these backpacks that you can put on a cow and that captures their fart, the methane gas, which apparently, you know, is, is quite uh, deleterious to our environment. And that way you can not only reduce emissions, but turn those farts into usable energy. H have you heard about this kind of work? No. And that's interesting because the cow 
expert that I spoke to at UC Davis Agriculture School told me about this amazing mechanism um, by which uh, a cow, in fact, he was saying it's not farted out, it's belched out. And it's not even belched, it's exhaled, that they have a, they have a mechanism whereby the methane is, uh, re, it's, it's a routing technique where it's, it comes back up and is exhaled quietly. You don't want to, if you're a cow or an, other grazing animal, you don't want to be belching loudly and giving away your position to a predator. So they, they have an adaptation where they are exhaling tremendous amounts of methane. So he, uh, my understanding from him was that it was coming out the mouth uh, rather than the rear end, but perhaps they're also em- emitting it off the, off the back end. But either way, sure, I guess, <laughs> why not? It sounds like a win-win, unless you're the cow. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So that brings me to another question, you know, thinking about the person who actually has to fit the backpack onto the cow. um, What was the worst dirty job that you encountered on your grand tour of the elementary canal? (laughs) Um, The guy at state in the the guy in the state prison who's checking everybody coming in. They are the (laughs) like bend over spread and cough. I forget if that's the exact sequence. But um, yeah, the that that's you know, not really a fun, <laughs> appealing job right there. Now, if we have any listeners left, I wanted to end on a slightly more positive <laughs> note <laughs> um, and talk about one of my favorite treatments that you talk about in the book, and that is the kitten treatment for someone who has an impacted bowel. So can you tell us a little <laughs> bit about this treatment? Yeah, I, uh, there were a lot of interesting historical treatments for um, obstipation, which is obstinate constipation, uh, for everything from swallowing lead shot and then moving around a lot to kind of break things up manually with these pieces of lead shot. Uh, also, just picking up the patient, throwing him over your shoulder and jostling him around to break things up. That was another one that I liked to picture. But the, yeah, there was a, a physician who, and I, and he did not explain himself, but he felt that you should uh, lie abed with a kitten pressed to your gut, a live kitten uh, for a few days. And I didn't know if that was one, just sort of a way to get the person to relax. Like it was an early animal therapy, like, oh, you have a kitten, it'll make you relax. And you're, you know, there'll be certain um, hormonal changes just because you're happy and you have a kitten. And I don't know what he was thinking, but it is there in the medical text. Uh, there it is. I don't know if it's the Lancet or the British Journal of Medicine, but there it was um, as a treatment for obstinate constipation. I have not tried it. <laughs> we had a cat for a while and, you know, he did this kneading motion, which I, I, I was learned was actually when they uh, kittens do that in order to get their moms to produce milk for them. And so they have this kind of reflex of kneading. And so I guess, is that the idea that they would knead on your, you know, belly and that would sort of get things moving? I wondered if it was the kneading, yeah, or possibly some kind of just um, relaxation, something, you know, that's something more touchy-feely. But I did wonder about the kneading, but it's hard to imagine that if you've got a real impaction in the bowel, you know, a kitten pressing up and down, it's it's hard to imagine that being very efficacious. Yeah, but it does sound a lot more, um, you know, desirable than taking a laxative or an enema. So yeah, I, I'll definitely I think try that. I definitely would start with the kitten before you, you know, move on to X-lax. Absolutely. Well, Mary Roach, thank you for being on Inquiring Minds. Oh, thank you so much for having me.
I learned a lot from that show. I'm not sure I wanted to know all of it. <laughs> but, you know, just as you cannot unsee some things, so you also cannot unhear some things. And the phrase world war in the colon, I think, is a phrase that cannot be unheard. But I will thank you for making it more widely known. It's definitely a public service that fecal transplants are actually based on good science. And some people might... Uh, really need one. Yeah, it's amazing how effective they seem to be and, you know, how how long it took for people to pick them up. But for a long time, fecal transplants weren't um, acknowledged by the FDA as a as a really effective treatment. And part of that is because, you know, who wants to do a clinical trial that involves fecal transplants and actually doesn't make a lot of money for anyone? You know, clinical trials are expensive. And so there isn't necessarily a party that would benefit from doing them. But in fact, you know, it is one of the most effective treatments we have for, you know, a lot of these conditions. So it's really interesting and worth doing. Yeah, and it might be the case that nobody really actually aspires to be the world expert on fecal transplants and sort of being known as that. It's, maybe it's, uh, there's a deterrent there. Well, there's a lot of scientists out there, Chris. <laughs> okay, yes. That's the fault of somebody. So, uh, no pun intended. So, that's it for another episode, and I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, stock tips, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. And I wanted to remind you that this episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. And exclusively for listeners to this episode, Audible has a great offer, a free audiobook. Yep, totally free. You just have to go to this specific URL to get it, audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, which is a journalistic collaboration that includes The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by the award-winning producer, Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. are true We're overwhelming power the sauce of destiny yes the most legendary sauce has arrived as mcdonald's transforms into the anime world of wickdonald's the greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili wickdonald's sauce to make your 10-piece wick nuggets fries and sprite ultra powerful unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at wickdonald's ba-da-ba-ba-ba go i participate in mcdonald's for a limited time while supplies last